got all kinds of uh, questions for you. Um, I always prepare. I've always got more questions than we'll ever get through on the show because I live in fear of the person who says yes, no, yes, no, yes, and then I'm done. I, I don't have any more questions. <laughs> um, but but my main people don't really do that to you, do they? No, it hasn't. It's only happened <laughs> so far. Uh, fortunately, I'm talking mostly with authors and publishing people who tend to be very verbose. So it works yeah. out. Uh, and I keep getting, I, I can't believe the luck I've had with uh, so many of the wonderful guests that have that have come on. I keep thinking that sooner or later it's going to be the Wizard of Oz and they find out it's just a guy behind the curtain and then this whole thing's done. <laughs> and fair That's enough, you. I'll be happy. I got along with him. got away with it for as long as I did. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's funny. <laughs> so your podcast is canceled, sir. You, you were way out of your league. I was the whole time. I was just waiting for you to notice. Fair enough. <laughs> you were an imposter. What well, we all fear. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Pretty much. Yeah. That's what I find funny is I keep talking to people that I would think that like if there's a, a moment you can reach where you had that total author's in, that, oh, I'm all successful, I'm all knowing, I can be calm now, it would be this person or that person. And I keep finding, no, it's not true for them. I don't think it's true oh, for yeah. anybody. If it is, it's probably somebody who is woefully unaware of, of how far they have yet to go, I'm sure. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I, I think feeling that way is such a part of the momentum for for the writing, you know, is is um, maybe not even a conscious way, but, you know, the, I mean, this is the, this is a process, not even each book, but our whole careers, I think, is is a process. And to me, that's what, you know, that's what, what we're, that's what drives us is, is, you know, okay, yeah, well, that was my past work. And now what am I going to do? And am I going to do it right? And, you know, um, or will I just feel as new as I ever was at this? You know, I think, I think every time I sit down to start a project, it feels, it feels new. And I feel I go back, right, right back to my old insecurities, but, you know, mostly doing the work is, is the answer to all of that, right? That's the unraveling. It's just sitting down every day and, and getting after it. And then that, that centers you and makes you feel calm about writing or no, not at all. It's just, you have to keep going <laughs> while, while feeling not uh, centered. No, I, I mean, I don't think about the centering too much. I just think about, oh, what needs to be said next, you know? And that I guess is its own kind of centering, you know, what, what was I, what was that scene I was in yesterday and, and where did, you know, and what follows or, or else, or, or even in my case, since I write out of order, what's down the, what's down the line and what can I write? You know, what, what's something I know, cause that will feel easier to write if I know a scene is coming and then I can kind of write to it, you know, <laughs> fill in, you know, I fill myself to it. And every once in a while I realize, oh, you know, there wasn't really that much between that last, that last scene and this scene. So that's good because, you know, I always think that, that can, you know, a book should should be told with few words instead of tons of words. So when my novels start getting long, I start wanting to trim them back, you know. So you're in a hurry to, to finish so that one, it'll be less words you have to cut and two, you can get down to the real work of, 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 of shaping them and cutting them down a bit? Yeah, exactly. I sort of do that as I go anyway. I, when I look at yesterday's work, for instance, I'll see a lot that can be cut, just a lot that can be, you know, that can be told um, in a shorter sentence or in, um, in a, you know, or 
where I've where I've actually sort of told it said it two different ways this is something I find in in um, in a lot of writers you know sometimes when I'm mentoring somebody I'll, I'll, I'll say oh you know you've told us two clever ways it's the same thing two clever way clever ways so I do that too choose one you know <laughs> choose one so that it has more impact on the page you know because <laughs> you want you want to keep your reader happy and I think that making them impatient with you is not what we want to do especially when young audiences you know such a great point i feel that this should definitely be the, the start of the show hi there esteemed audience um welcome to middle grade Ninja. i'm your host rob kent this is my guest leslie connor um, and you start with the end of your story in mind is that or is that every story or is that just your new novel anybody here seen frenchie which is available now or soon will be esteemed audience is, do you know oh well, first of all, thank you for, for having me um, on. I, I'm excited to be here, obviously, wiggling in my chair a lot. You know, that was actually a little unusual for me to uh, kind of hear the ending of a book um, it, that way. Well, and I didn't know exactly what it was I was hearing. And I, just for the audience, what I'm referring to is that, um, you know, this book began with a, with a three by five card that I keep by the side of my bed. And just before sleeping, I... I came out of that semi-conscious state and wrote down two things and knowing that if I didn't write them down I would not remember them in the morning and when I went back to them I saw on the card that it said flapping and tweeting and a whole a bowl in the earth a bowl in the earth and it, it took me a little bit longer to realize I, that to me has is an ending and I'm gotta you know I've got to get on this journey now um so I've usually been kind of thinking about a situation, um, you know, you know how uh, sometimes write, uh, we're asked, um, you know, what should you write? Should you write what you know? Should you write what you want to know? And my answer to that has always been, I write what I can't ignore. I figure if this thing uh, sticks to me and, and I do it right, then it'll probably stick to the reader as well. And so if it's of interest to me, it will be of interest to the reader. So I trust in that blindly <laughs> when I write, you know, I just, I just say, it has to be so, you know, uh, and that's what, that's what, that's what, where the starts come from, for me, um, get the situation, and then that usually comes from some aspect of, of real life, because I usually, mostly I write um, uh, realistic fiction, that's my, that's sort of my wheelhouse, my genre, middle grade as well, uh, and so that's what I'm looking for, you know, that's, I'm looking to kind of um, discover why some event or some, you know, something I saw keeps sticking to me. What's the story that I've been inventing around it? And uh, that that's what gets me going. So yeah, with, with anybody here seeing Frenchie, it was a little unusual to have these two funny little fragments be the end. That's not always my process. I mean, who, I mean, I have, do any of us ever have exactly the same process? I sort of doubt it. But, uh, but I knew, you know, I knew it did kind of make me realize what I was writing toward and what does this mean and why why am I so attached to it the next morning <laughs> that kind of thing so yeah interesting it's funny even when I've written sequels the process is still not the same <laughs> good point yeah this is something you know about for sure yeah it's, it's, well, I, mean, I do think like it's, it's not, not the same book, but it's it's the same characters. It's the same type of feeling. So why is this not going smoother? <laughs> mm, <laughs> yeah, figuring yeah. it out on the fly. 
Yeah, because I think like any of us, it's a whole new day. <laughs> it's a whole new day for that character. Anything can happen. The troubles are new, you know, new to them. And uh, and that's, you know, I imagine with sequel writing, that's where you're at. I have done no sequel writing. I only think about my books later and wonder, you know, and kind of imagine what the characters are up to. And I sort of leave my readers to do the same so I have not written any series any, or any sequels. I've been asked to by the readers, but I think mostly my books stop and stand alone. I kind of admire those who can do the do sequels and who can do series. So I think I, I loved that when I would find that as a kid, but I haven't seemed to have been able to give that back. So. <laughs> Is that something that you, that you have like on your writer's bucket list at some point, a series or at least one sequel? That speaks you know, to you? I don't even have it. Not, not really. I think I kind of know now what it is I, I do. And I, I haven't, I have almost, you know, I've really never, never strongly considered writing a sequel. And I have a couple, I have a couple of stories that have ended where there's quite a bit that still could happen. You now it's sort of interesting how, how you look back and say, you know, there's a, there's really, there's really a lot sitting on the table that could still happen, you know, with that book. But most of them feel finished to me. And I feel like I, I just want, you know, I, I love it when a kid will write me the, the next chapter uh, after, after my final one. You know, I love that sense of having left the reader um, with my job, you know, <laughs> leave the reader uh, playing the part of the writer, which is, you know, I mean, it's just a great skill to be able to, it means they're imagining. It means that things came to life uh, for them enough that, they think that there's a continuation. That's a really big compliment when a kid does that for you, you know. Oh yeah, that's that's tremendous. They're so they're so involved in the world. They they want to keep it going. Uh, and when you when that happens, I mean, obviously what's on the page is what's on the page. But you keep thinking about the characters afterward. Do you have some sort of definitive answers in the back of your mind after a book ends as to what happened? What happened next? Um, I bet I could probably tell you for each book, I would say, um, you know, I think since we're writing middle grade, maybe you think about this too, is, you know, the one place I won't leave us off is, is, I mean, or I never intentionally leave us off, is with anything with a bleak feeling about it, there's always going to be hope at the end, there's always going to be a future um, that, I've tried to, you know, uh, tried to give glimpses of, you know, where you where you get the sense of where this, you know, where this character will go. I, I like leaving them okay, you know. I, I think that that's the most fair thing to do. And I don't know who wants a who wants a, a drag of an ending anyway. <laughs> if you can leave them with adventure, that you know, for for series writers, I imagine that there still has to be sort of something unresolved, but. Um, I like to leave it where they, where it's not wrapped up perfectly in a bow. And I don't, you know, I don't think that things have to be, um, I mean, what's perfect anyway, but where you have a sense of hope and you can imagine, you know, the good, the good things for the character who I've usually taken through quite a patch of hell before, you know, but by the time I get them to the end of their story, Throwing a lot of rocks. Uh, putting your putting your characters through a little bit of hell because you know that's going to be good storytelling, or do you feel incredibly guilty and you apologize as you do it? 
Oh, I, well, I cry as I do it. I mean, it's really, I mean, it can be really heart wrenching, but you know, sometimes I think you're kind of working with that, with that proverbial ball of clay and you, um, you have to kind of stay true to it. It's like, it's like certain things, you know, certain things are going to be expected. And that's how you keep your reader, you know, you provide tension. Uh, it's so basic, you know, so simple, so basic. Um, there has to be enough reason to, you know, for the, for the reader to follow them. I, I do think that my stories are character driven. I work a lot harder on plot than I do on character or voice. Um, and, you know, um, I, I always avoided conflict, you know, as a person. And so maybe I'm sort of living that out here. It's like, oh, we're going to have some conflict. We're definitely going to, you know, we're going to, and we're going to figure out how you, how you resolve that, you know? <laughs> so, so my books are, you know, teasing knots a lot. You said teasing knots? Teasing out the knots. Oh, yeah, I teasing out a, a knot in your life, you know, uh, you know, teasing, teasing things out, working things out. You know, um, whereas, you know, I think maybe, maybe by the way I was raised, I was sort of taught to, you know, walk away from, from conflict and that kind of thing. There's a time to do that, I suppose, but um, it's a lot more interesting to watch somebody work through something. Yeah, in an ideal world, my personal life is just the most boring ho-hum. I'm completely at ease and calm. And my characters, oh, my God, what's going on with them? You wouldn't even believe it. <laughs> yes. Oh, I know. Yeah. That's so cool. What uh, gets a little bit hectic is when my life is a little bit complicated. And then like, oh, and I see some of that beginning to be reflected in the character situation as well, kind of mirroring back to me. Oh, well, I can't, I don't know how to work out this problem in real life, but you character, I can figure this out for you. <laughs> Absolutely. And do, you, and do you find you, I'm turning this on you now. So here's a question for you. <laughs> do you find that you yourself sort of mentally taking note of the, of the feelings you're having of what your body is doing when you're, when you're in? when you're in those times of chaos and then you know being able to kind of tap back into that for your characters I do, I do that consciously now I say okay this feels awful let me think what am I experiencing here and I kind of sometimes scribble down some notes and then I you know just go back to at least go back to the memory and then write the angst into the scene uh you know from my own you know sort of from my own experience and it doesn't have to be exactly the same thing happening but just, you know, you are devastated by something. And what does devastation really feel like? You know, all different levels of that. But I find myself doing that. Yeah, there was a moment. This is not a middle grade friendly movie, but I don't care. It's a great one. Uh, and the Blair Witch Project as the, uh, you know, they're, they're recording themselves. And as things are getting out of control, one of them turns on uh, Heather Donahue is the, is the main character. You're trying to control this. You're still trying to make your movie and pretend this isn't happening to you. And I felt 100% called out of that moment because that's how I approach some conflict in my life. Like, oh, I'm just preserving this memory for later when I'm going to write it down. So it's perfectly safe. I'm an observer here there's there's no problem <laughs> right right so true so true yeah it also helps me sort of get through those those daily things I mean I think this is where you know writing is sort of connected to spirit and um you know okay you know if I can slow myself down enough to say okay what what I'm what's happening right now 
is really stinky or is super joyful, whichever. And just, you know, to tell myself, ooh, you know, make sure you let your writer self get involved in this a little bit so that, you know, so that you don't forget the feelings of it. And so very cool. Well, part of the joy. Yeah, I don't find myself doing that when it's a joyful occasion. Like on my wedding day, I was like, well, this is just for us I, and, and all of our yeah. family here. And I won't save this for later. I, I, I wasn't thinking about writing at all. It's just when, well, oh, I'm in so much pain. I need to remember this physical pain I'm feeling so I can describe it perfectly in a book. And in some ways that makes this noble, what I'm experiencing right now. <laughs> there you go. Useful anyway. <laughs> <laughs> when once the pain's over, if I'm honest with myself, I could have just Googled it or watched a YouTube video of somebody else's pain. And that probably would have sufficed. <laughs> you think so? Oh man. See, I see not the same unless I, unless something has me weeping. I mean, the work of other writers often does that for me you know it's like ooh, wow that scene really got to me you know whether it's movie or or um you know whether it's on film or, or in a book it's like ooh, that was you know i really felt that you know that's great well i uh you were saying brilliant things about writing and i knew i would never ask you the right question to unlock it again so we got kind of a <laughs> rolling start there <laughs> Uh, but I did want to take a moment for for esteemed audience who hasn't been reading about you all day and preparing for an interview. Um, <laughs> you listen to the show before, so you know I never uh, summarize anybody else's biography or anybody else's book. Um, what uh, what should esteemed audience know about about Leslie Connor? Oh my gosh. Um... I don't know. I feel like I'm you know I'm I'm a, I feel like I'm a face behind my books not not you know not before them which is which you know I don't know that doesn't describe much does it so um I mean I mean I think I think one of the notable things I'm thinking I'm thinking about this because I'm going to do a career day at the high school next week one notable thing I think is that I did not set out to be a writer um and that is sort of interesting to me. What I did set out to be was, was um, you know, an artist, a visual artist. And in fact, I really kind of came to children's book writing through the illustrator door, I thought. <laughs> so um, yeah, I have a, you know, my, my degree is, is in art, um, not in writing. And when I completed the degree, I um, took like a, you know, a, a, a local adult education class with a local writer because I knew I wanted to pair pair writing and illustrating but I didn't I think I never thought that the writing world was something I could really touch I really felt like that was something that was going to be harder but um, it turned out to be just reverse for me the writing actually came much more easily to me and I leave almost no evidence behind that I ever entered as an illustrator um I immediately discovered that I had like a middle grade voice that I wanted to explore. Um, and yeah, as soon as I acknowledged that it was, it was kind of, I mean, I did a little genre hopping in the beginning and I have, I had, my first book was a picture book, not illustrated by me. Um, I had, I'll show you, I actually, you know, blew the dust off this, it's out of print and everything, but I wrote Miss Bridie Chose a Shovel and it was illustrated by Mary Azarian, who if you know, is a Caldecott medalist. And uh, it was a great experience. It was really funny because some of the sketches in my in my book, the scenes that I made, um, were very similar to what Mary uh, ended up ended up doing. Only she did it with her beautiful woodcuts and her expertise, and so that ended up being a great entry in. 
But even by the time that book came out, um, I realized that, you know, I, I was sort of encouraged by, by the, the um, well, by the responses I was getting to my picture book texts through the rejection process and by um, the, um, a, a local author who was, who was leading the class. Um, to consider that some of my work sounded like it wanted to be longer works of fiction. And I it kind of didn't acknowledge it initially. And then I thought, well, why am I saying no to this when I know that I have this like kind of YA or middle grade thing running through my mind? And why don't I just go home and, and you know, I, I mean, I sat down and, and, you know, 1500 words later, I had really made a start on something that, of course, you know, wasn't publishable, but it was definitely good practice. So I think saying that I didn't, I didn't come to this through, you know, um, a writer's degree or an MFA kind of, uh, a, a kind of um, pathway is, is, I think, sort of interesting. You know, I think of Elizabeth Gilbert with Big Magic, and she said, you know, you can, you know, you can learn from so many different places, and it's applying yourself and, you know, and doing, doing this work and discovering that you have voice, and that's, that's big. So, yeah, I guess that I didn't plan to do this is sort of the most significant thing I can tell you about myself as a writer. <laughs> That's really going to be a little different than what you out. usually hear. <laughs> it's going well. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I had, yeah. uh, well, it's true, though. It's the truth. <laughs> well, I had read that uh, when, when you were young and you're living outside of, uh, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mutilate this with my Indiana pronunciation, Schenectady, New York. Uh, you got that, it. That, Perfect. That company that uh, sold some of the finest printing papers in all the land. And then he brought home these big, beautiful books that were so heavy that they pinned you to your chair when you when you held them in your lap. Yep. That struck me. That had to be a, a, a huge influence on you from a young age of, of, of steering oh, you yeah. toward books. Oh, yeah. Definite book love, you know, definitely. Um, and uh and, you know, even I was a little bit of a reluctant reader, though, interestingly enough, but a lot of these books were these beautiful archival books of uh, things like the Audubon books and, uh, you know, and other other really well-known graphic designers and things. So I was looking at a lot of imagery and I have a feeling that, you know, for me, anytime I see something, I, I automatically, and this is when I should have acknowledged I was a writer a long time ago, I automatically start to, you know, go all starfish brain and start creating the story, which, you know, made it very hard to be, for instance, you know, a social studies student as a kid and, and you know, trying to follow a history book when I would come upon some cool uh, detail or something, my mind immediately wanted to create its own story around it. And of course, that wasn't what the facts were. And so when you get to the multiple choice test, you're going to have a really hard time if you really just made up the story and didn't find out what the facts were. But that's me. I love to take, you know, some kind of thing, image, anything like that, and, uh, and, then, and then grow it. And I mean, you know, these books that that we had access to were really neat and they really weren't, they weren't kid books, really. They're just all different things, different, you know, there were famous designers like Ivan Shemayev and Saul Bass and uh, gosh, I can't even name any more. I, I, I can't come up with them off the top of my head, but 
you know, yeah, the smell of their ink on the page and these bold images and often sort of strange images, you know, often you'd be turning it this way and that way and giving it a good look, you know, to decide. But I, those were the kind of books I spent a long time with. And yeah, they were, they were big, heavy books and they held you down to your chair. No tiny, tiny type to deal with, you know, I have a feeling I would have played a big type. Uh, and then, you know, we were a family that read too. I mean, picture books are still one of my favorite things. And uh, there were we there were four of us growing up. And so we had nightly picture book readings, as I recall. And then, you know, as the siblings, my older siblings um, would then read to us. My sister in particular was really a great caretaker of the rest of us. And so we were always read to and had favorite books, still, still do. You know, I kind of confiscated all the family books and and funny story. So my, one of my, my grandpa went to um, school with Theodore Geisel. And so we have um, books, um, books from Dr. Seuss that had been signed to my dad and his brother and his sister from all those years ago. So I kind of have those too. And we were, you know, we, we, we uh, you know, we definitely, we sort of knew at a young age that they were kind of collector's items or whatever, but we, it wasn't like we weren't allowed to, tr to touch them. They were, you know, you, you could, you could play with the books. You could open the books. You couldn't color in them, but you could, you could play with them. That's, that's, uh, <laughs> I, I don't even know what that would be worth. You, you, I mean, you'd have to seek out some collectors to find out. Yeah. But my... <laughs> yeah. It's really neat. It's it's really it's really interesting to see, you know. And of course, you know, you talked about, about old stories. Not you were talking about, um, you know, stories being looked at very differently now than they were before. We're more analytical about what was being handed to us. And of course, um, you know, Dr. Seuss, and you know, I mean, and even in the story, you know, stories like Babar, um, you know, they're very racist. There are very racist elements in them. So. You know, there's there's that reckoning too. Yeah, that was uh, before before the uh, rush start of the the podcast. When we talked about writing, I, I had mentioned that um, um, uh, a previous guest Kyle Lukoff had had disillusioned me about one of my favorite novels by Roald Dahl. Um, and I had accepted that the witches was sexist, but he pointed out why it was also racist as well, and 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 many other concerning elements that that made me say, oh, that 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 makes me sad, and it makes me sad not just in oh, I was a child and I loved that story, and now I'm an adult and I have to, you know, when I mentioned how much I love this story, I have to bring up first this little preface that hey, it was a different time, it wasn't that different though. <laughs> yeah. Somebody, yeah. somebody in the editorial office. Should have, should have stopped Mr. Dahl and said, hey, you know what, maybe maybe we do another pass at this before we publish it, but whatever. Um, yeah. The other thing about that that makes me a little bit concerned, and, and, and maybe, maybe this is a shared concern for you as well, is this idea that Roald Dahl, despite being obviously very flawed, um, was a product of his time. There were plenty of racist, sexist people during that time. They didn't all write Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The man had the, the okay. gift of of storytelling. And so it worries me a little bit that if a man that objectively brilliant, at least in terms of telling stories, can be that far off and that wrong and now kind of paying a price for it, um, well, I mean, he's dead. I, I don't know if this bothers him at all or not. But in terms of his fiction, that we do have to qualify um, when we talk about Roald Dahl, those things that are also true about him. Does that 
worry you what worries me a little bit that um, as um, readers continue to progress by definition they will have progressed and they will be smarter they will know more if they're looking back at things i've written at all just by definition mm -hmm. of how far they've gone they're going to be lacking they won't be caught up and i i hate to judge writers of the past too harshly for not knowing what they didn't know, knowing that theoretically my time is, is coming. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of us thinking about that. Um, you know, um, one of my favorite uh, podcasts besides yours is um, is Book Friends Forever, which is uh, Grace Lynn and Albina Ling. And um, they they have been they grace discusses uh having written a book that she wishes she hadn't hadn't done or wouldn't do now uh and i think so i think i mean i think that that's true i um i have one one um right, well let me think i have when when we get to ghosts i have a book i had a book called dead on town line that's out of print now i also had a book called um the things you kiss goodbye and it was a, a little bit of a departure for me it was a, it was more of a ya book and um you know it's about a girl in an abusive relationship and what i thought was i mean it's sort of a good sign for the world and yet wasn't great for me was i think that the readers felt very impatient with her i mean they said you know she's an idiot she lets this guy beat her up and she you know and lets him lets her push him around and i think that it you know it was it was hard for them to to reconcile and i know that that book for instance would would never survive the me too movement i mean it would be it would be looked at as really really dusty now and it should be um you know um still kind of a good read in its own way but there would be a real impatience with it because we've you know had movement we we continue to raise our conscience and i i think that that's positive um and but yeah you do wonder ooh, what's going to be you know what's going to be my reckoning what have i what have I, what have I put in a book, even phrases um, I worry about sometimes because some of them, I think kind of, they may have you know, some phrases that we use a lot have roots in something that we didn't realize they had, you know, was the, was the roots like circling the wagons is, you know, is really not, I mean, that's really not something that we want to put in a book anymore. You know, it, it, that's a reference that we don't, we don't want to make. So, um, so anyway, you know, I mean, I think I think it's on it, it's an ongoing thing, and I think I don't know for me, I don't know how you feel about this, but I think that acknowledging um, that you might have written it differently is is you know is is the step is the only the only step the only action that you have to take. It's in print. You can ask for it to be you know not reprinted. I suppose if that's if if you feel really strongly about it or you know that kind of thing. But you know. I mean, everybody probably a lot of people have something like that, I think. And and yeah, I do I do sometimes think about it. I do worry, you know, have I handled this right? And in I mean in writing about um in writing um about autism, I I had a lot to learn, a lot, a lot to become aware of. Um and you know, I I desperately wanted to get that right. And you know, I hope I have, but you know, it, I think it remains to be seen. I want the community, you know, when the, when the community reads it, we'll see, we'll see, right? This is scary, it's a scary job. <laughs> well, theoretically, the theoretically, if I'm, if I take myself completely out of it, the fact that society will have progressed to the point that they recognize this thing that was commonplace now is not okay, 
it outweighs the um the, my my need to have been right all along like it's it's better really that <laughs> society has progressed forward uh, i i hope definitely and that's very well said well said had provided us with a perfect transition to talk about one of my new favorite books. Uh, anybody here seen Frenchie, which I should remind esteemed audience is either available now or soon would be, or soon will be, so you can be pre-ordering your copy and in a few days uh, it will be available for you. Uh, and as promised, um, I will not uh, summarize your book, so tell esteemed audience what they need to know uh, about Frenchie so we can talk a little bit about it. Oh, sure. Um, so um, anybody here seen Frenchie is a story really of a friendship into my way of thinking. Um, and uh, it, it, it's um, most of the chapters, there are multiple points of view, but most of the chapters are from Aurora Pauline Petroquin, who is a really um, loud, um, impulsive kind of kid. Um, she's actually kind of had trouble making and keeping friends over the years because she's just um so out there and um you know just kind of exuberant <laughs> uh but um the book has her in six she opens with her in sixth grade but come third grade she flashes back to when she met frenchie livernoy who moved in uh the house next door actually and um, Frenchie was really kind of her, her new shot at a, at a friendship. Frenchie is um, non-vocal um, and autistic, although I don't really say that much about it in the book. I'm mostly looking at the behaviors, which is a thing I do. I really like to kind of paint the character on the page and let that stand without doing a lot of labeling. Um, so he just sort of silently chooses Aurora for his person and, um, and you know, follows her about. And she really becomes what I call psychologically responsible for Frenchie. She looks out for him, but he does okay himself. And in fact, when they hike around in the, uh, in the in, in, inland uh, areas of Maine, they do live in a coastal town, but they often spend a lot of time in the woods. Now he's often the one who knows his way home, and and uh, she'll be likely to you know wander around and get in, and get not really lost, but just a little off track. And and uh, he always makes it home first. That's one of the things that she notices. But what was on my mind um, is that you know with a friendship of that kind, what happens when I mean these are two two kids who are probably being given strategies to kind of um, you know, socialize them. That seems to be, the, you know, an, an all important, you know, thing in, in um, like in middle school. And for me, I, I was asking myself, what happens when those strategies begin to work better for one friend than for the other? Or what about just um, a kid who's going to grow uh, into her place on the spectrum, whereas, whereas, another is gonna stay, not change as much. Um, and of course, that's kind of the setup for um, her becoming distracted one day and Frenchie not turning up to his classroom. She usually would be the one that would turn and kind of loop him in and say, we're going this way now, you know? Um, 
And he's, of course, very geared to pattern and to being able to predict what his day is going to be like. You know, there are a lot of things she says he gets a lot of things and he's used to a lot of things, even though he doesn't speak. He will he will know what's coming next and he will follow. And, you know, she and, but she's one of the people who can really get through to him. He's also got this connection to birds. And so she'll often use a bird. Uh, a bird sound or, a, or um, a reference to birds to get him to do the things she wants to do. She's very much an outdoor kid. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's one of the reasons that they hang around um, in, the, in the natural world so much. Um, but yeah, he, she misses something and, uh, and he wanders away from the school one day and that, then this, this search ensues. And so the story really becomes about, you know, um, for me, I might, one of my other questions was, how do we, how do people become lost and uh, how do they stay lost? You know, um, sometimes when I'm watching these shows on TV, I think to myself, you know, what did, what did someone in the community miss that they might have seen even out of the corner of their eye, but just not register or just not think was important um, you know, it may be until later in the search or something where they, it dawns on them that they, that they saw something. And what about someone who saw something but isn't telling um, or maybe can't tell uh, what they saw? And so that's how, you know, this, this title, anybody here seen Frenchie, um, kind of has two meanings because um, she feels, Aurora feels that Frenchie is kind of ignored at school too, or not seen by the other kids that they don't, you know, they don't read his behavior the way she has learned to. And so when he actually goes missing, then we really, that, that's when that title kind of has two meanings to it. So um, yeah, it's about, a, you know, about, and it's largely about a community getting together. And this is where the multiple points of view come in, which I had such a great time writing. I mean, just what was, just writing a little passage about what was distracting someone from seeing the boy who entered the field right behind them, you know, that was fascinating for me. Um, and then, you know, one thing that I like to share about this book, I still only have the arc, so this wasn't the finished. Thing. I, I um, used maps a lot when I was writing this book. I had had a whole thing out, and I, I just was, I sent this messy map, you know, into my editor, and um, the illustrator who did such a beautiful job on the cover also did this incredible map that I think kids are going to really enjoy seeing how it was that people missed where Frenchie was. And uh, I, you know, I can't, I kind of can't wait to hear feedback on that from, from them. So um, yeah, just, I don't know, just kind of slipping down inside a bunch of different characters to feel their feels and, and write their parts, you know? Kind of like love, uh, that business that. of imagining a memoir, you know, imagining that you were there during that time and, and that, that you are that person experiencing that thing. And when you're hunting for a missing friend, I think that that's a lot of emotion. Well, as you were uh, describing the, the novel, there's, you know, there's the, there is, there is a plot. There's a very, uh, uh, not a straight line, but there's, uh, there's there's obvious conflict that's introduced, and we're we're following right along. But you started with character, uh, and mostly you you stayed with character. And so I'm I'm curious because yeah. we said originally that this starts as a as as not a dream but a, a notion that you have that you're writing on the three by five card. 
flapping and tweeting a bull in the earth and that's that's your end so how from that do you get that it's <laughs> the characters and that it's going to be Frenchie and Aurora Right, right. Um, well, Frenchie, um, as I said, has this connection to birds, and one of the few sounds or motions that he makes is he'll flap and, and then make a tweeting sound when he is when he has seen a bird. And um, sometimes, sometimes Aurora has not seen the bird with him, but other times she has. Um, and it's just it's just one of the things that he acknowledges in a way that um, that the rest of the world can read as oh. That means he saw a bird. So I, so I think you know, for me, it was it was a visual. I saw him flapping and doing this, you know, sort of sound, um, a bird sound. Uh, so that it was an automatic connect, connection to character. And the other, I think, was about you know, just kind of uh, yeah, I keep referring to sort of the natural world and this bowl in the earth. Um, I don't think it's really a big spoiler to say they, they visit a quarry at one point and um, that, you know, that is the, that is the thing. And um, I, I went and hiked a couple of different places, but a particular quarry in Maine. And, you know, I was photographing it and thinking, this is very beautiful and very dangerous. You know, it's an abandoned quarry, of course. I mean, if, you know, not, not, you know, inactive. Um, and it was so interesting to see the way nature was taking back the rock, you know, for me, for me anyway, um, you know, little pine trees managing to find root on these ledges. Uh, and yet, the, you know, the man-made drill drilling of holes, you know, I guess they put, um, they put something akin to rebar or something in to hold, hold things while they make a cut or something. Um, I didn't... I know a lot about about granite harvesting, but I certainly saw the evidence of it, which was interesting. But you know, I mean, I think it's there's there are a lot of a lot of times I think quarries do feature in stories as being sort of a, something that has incredible depth and darkness to it. Um, and you know, um, the temperature uh, down center of a quarry can be uh, really dangerously low because of how they're fed the, the, the water source. Um, also because uh, quarries have been have been sort of filled with um, artifacts of the past, everything from, you know, bed springs to the netting that they used for the blasting, which, you know, was metal and dangerous. And um, the, the um, grout, or it's called, or um, uh, tiny, you know, tiny rock, that tiny exploded rock, um, is quite sharp too and can be loose and slidey. And I thought, yeah, you know, there's all kinds of havoc that could happen here. And so, you know, uh, that's what I was looking at. And I was thinking, I, I love the beauty of this and I love its danger as well in terms of being a writer and looking for a, you know, a setting in a story. So those, you know, that's how those two things ended up figuring in, you know, I knew I needed to go see the quarries to understand this bowl in the earth feeling. So. You you hike. I think you, you said you hike or ski there uh, every yeah. morning before you start writing. So are you out? Yeah. Are you out looking for places where Frenchie might have gone and kind of uh, plan? I mean, obviously you're not in Maine, but right. I'm not in Maine now. I'm in Connecticut, but um, I do. I visit Maine every year, and um, I went back to Maine kind of in the off season, in the shoulder season. To, um, to really research this book because you know I'd never really been there in September, which is the month that the book that the story takes place. And you know there were differences in the light and in the temperature and in the color of the foliage and things like that that just really got 
you know, I wanted to get right. Um, and in, in some cases, since they were, they were searching, um, you know, the, the amount of sunlight, sunlight left was, was, you know, of utmost importance. And I wanted to know what the slant of that was, what the, what, what was the color of pink like and what time would everything be happening and so there I am out there waiting just waiting for it to get dark you know and and, uh, and kind of watching you know the sun go down and 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 you know the darkness behind me or or the light behind me whichever thing was happening so I felt it was really important um it's also just looking for what was what you know like I say what was turning in terms of ferns and things like that what what was going on um and just the the more the quiet more quietness of of Maine when there wasn't a lot of traffic on Route One in the summer things like that just a feel for that um, was important I thought so I was you know they're taking tons of photographs <laughs> couple couple of Septembers ago now well, how uh, how precise do do you feel you need to be when you're describing setting. I, I, I often think of, of Avi, nice name drop, but when mm -hmm. Avi was on here, uh, he was talking about writing historical fiction. He would look up the weather on the day, you know, and he's writing, you know, something that happened a hundred years ago. And I'm thinking, nobody's going to catch that. And he's like, well, no, I'll know. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. Know what the weather was on the day that I'm describing. Do you feel the need to, uh, where, 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 where are you comfortable um, slipping into fiction and saying, well, I'll, I'll write what it needs to be for the story versus this is a real location. I know I'm describing exactly, if you go there, you're going to see exactly what, what, what Frenchie and Aurora see. Yeah. In terms of place is such a good question. In terms of place, I'm usually looking pretty closely at it. I, I, I prefer usually not to name, um, specific towns I'll often change the name of a town but it will be based on a place and what I find is that when I'm doing something like referring to maps and things often that's where the goodies are you know that 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 the the true things about it are are gifts you know um routes and um trails and what you know um you know I find out sort of what's there for me that works in my favor <laughs> and and really I could really use that I suppose I exploit it to some degree um what I avoid in terms of truth um oftentimes is you know if there's really a certain house or something at a certain corner I might change the name of a road or something because I don't want anybody to be bothered you know <laughs> that was inspired by this didn't use it precisely made some changes who, who knows why and then you know I love when they get in touch with me and I tell them why you know because I didn't want anybody to you know think that that's who really lived there you know I didn't I didn't want um them to think I was writing about any real person you don't want something you know you don't want anybody's privacy invaded um even though you know you weren't writing about them you know if something comes real enough for somebody they could make assumptions that are not right and so you know that for me is my caution with um with place um yeah and the rest of it you know I mean I mean, I, I had to be following uh, Full Moon, I, you know, the, the moon for another book that I wrote, um, A Home for Goddesses and Dogs. There's, there are moons on the cover of this book. Um, I, that, that was really important because um, the, girls, the girl, a recently orphaned girl, her mom was um, kind of a 
practicing pagan and was very interested in the different kinds of moons and what they would mean and, and what attention we should be paying to them. Um, so I had to, I had to kind of get them, you know, get them right. And I had to sort of choose a year, a specific year and stick with that calendar because, well, you know, the copy editor comes back at you with that stuff anyway. It's a fact they're fact checking and that kind of thing. But, um, and so I can see why Avi, who I adore, um, would, would need to, I think, yeah, I think for, and for historical fiction, I think that we are, we are, um, you know, I think we owe our readers the truth on, on that. I, I, I do think it's important for that. I, I really do. Yeah, most writers I've talked to do. Um, which is yeah, why is that right? the greatness of Avi is probably beyond me. <laughs> so wow. And and me. <laughs> and me. He is a fascinating storyteller, isn't he? So great. So you start, you, you've got an ending in mind. You've got your setting that's coming clearly into focus. So when does it come to you that these are going to be specifically Aurora and Frenchie and that they're both going to be somewhere on the autism spectrum? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I remember precisely how that, how that happened, but I knew I had this, you know, loud girl in my ear. I, I, I always feel like, um, you know, the tone of the book and the, and the voice kind of comes in through my writer's ear and I begin to sort of hear them chattering about, in this case, it was so interesting that I had one character that was non-vocal. Um, and by the way, we refer to him as non-vocal because he actually, um, we can't say he's nonverbal because he apparently does process language to some degree because he can carry out a command if he if he tunes in, uh, you know, any and, and, you know, he, he responds to being spoken to. Um, so uh, but he doesn't speak. So therefore, you know, not nonvocal. Um, so. I, you know, and I think I think I was thinking about friendships. Um, I, you know, I have known. Um, you know, we, I mean, we we probably all have. Um, you know, I I kind of have have observed just the difference for for a kid who's who's on on the spectrum in different ways. And of course, I've had them in my. Um, I've had you know really brilliant kids who can write who were probably on the spectrum who were in my um, different teen writing classes and things like this. And sometimes they tell me all about it, and other times they don't. Um, but you know you can kind of sense out how um, how socially um, the other kids aren't sure how to interact with them. They aren't sure how to be in, how to be included. And you know and yet there's never a flow. And and often years down the line. It's all kind of it. It is all it all is all kind of ironed out and it's all working. Or you know, and I think that we teach acceptance now much more than we used to. Um, and you know, I, I've always say, you know, really, you know, we're all a little weirdos. And so that that I think is, you know, I think that's great that we're acknowledging, you know, and, and celebrating our differences. And you know, it just leaves so much more room for everyone to accomplish what they want to accomplish have a fulfilling life um, and be contributors. You know, that that's the thing. I think that that's when we're, most of us are at our happiest when we can be contributors. And that's what I want, you know, that's kind of, I guess that's kind of the thing I wanted for Aurora. If I think about a character that, you know, what do I want for her as I as I write about her? What, what do I think she craves, whether she's super conscious of it or not? Um, what, you know, what would, what would be the thing I, what would be the great gift to give her? And I think that, you know, 
you know, mattering, making a difference. Um, it's like, you know, I had, I saw a kid with a really, I knew she was a good hearted kid, you know? Uh, so, um, yeah, you know, I think that what happens is the, 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 all the characters are kind of composites of uh, various people I've known or read about or can imagine, you know, it, it, it kind of comes from those three places uh, and, and always as composites. Um, yeah, so, so I just knew that this was, this was something I was interested in. The friendship interested in me, as I said. Um, yeah, it, it is so hard to put into words when it becomes, you know, when it becomes exactly about those characters. But boy, once once they're really there and they've attached themselves to the situation, the burbling is pretty loud and pretty constant. It's not very organized. <laughs> I would never be an organized writer. Um, <laughs> but that's when I can start sort of, you know, I often start with listing scenes, um, scenes that I know are going to happen in this book. And um, they don't even have to be the super pivotal scenes. It's just something I know about these two characters and interaction that they had or something. And those I find get sort of meatier and meatier as I list them and, and make them and spend some time writing them. Some of them, be, some scenes become not important enough to include, um, but maybe just something I needed to know. Uh, and they can be very short things. And I find myself reordering the scenes then, and and that's like in the beginning of the process. And then there comes this point about a third of the way through where, okay, now we're, you know, now we're going to kind of go from this one third point and we're going to kind of have a through right. And then usually somewhere around two thirds, I really hear the final scene and I'll go ahead and I'll write it. And that gives me this trajectory to aim for so that I think I get a better feeling about the middle, you know, <laughs> which can get weighty and soggy and wet and, and sometimes long. <laughs> you know? And that helps me keep that tight if I know, okay. And I, I do sometimes think to myself, okay, writer, shortest path there. Don't, don't, don't drag this out. Don't do that. You know, cause, um, cause I sometimes feel like the books, my books get too long. You know, I would love to, I would love to, I, mean, I keep landing around 320 for pages and I'd love to land more like 220. I think a lot of the stories could be told in that many, but then again, you know, from art school, I learned, you know, how long did it take you to make that painting? It took as long as it took. <laughs> you know, I had a professor who would not let us talk about that, you know. So, and then in the revision process, we can still trim. So, yeah. And sometimes my editor will make suggestions for that, you know. So, I mean, do you sit, you've got a list of scenes. Do you sit down and yeah. write, uh, like a character sheet? This is everything that's true of, of Aurora. This is everything that's true of, of, of every other character in the story, do you do you do that, or do you get to know them as you're writing about them? Mm, I might keep a little three by five card on each person, and it has more not it has more to do with um, something I see them doing. So again, it's kind of scene related, but about them. So it's not really like a list. Like I wouldn't say you know perseveres, you know. <laughs> The cracks or knuckles all the time. It wouldn't be it, it wouldn't be like those things for me. It would be more like you know, there's a day when she has a discussion with her mother about you know, and that gives us something about both characters, don't you know? And then I just kind of go back to it and say, no, is that going to be useful or is that not going to be useful? So, like I said, the scenes can be you know reordered and then connected, um, and I feel like you know scenes work for me because they're kind of short. I usually write with really short chapters. 
And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's rare for me to go over seven pages with a chapter in, a, in, in these middle grade books, um, which I think is kind of, which I like, I think it's, you know, attention span, I mean, my own and the readers. And um, I think also, you know, I think I'm also very attuned to books as read alouds. And I think, oh, stopping point, you know, oh, stopping point, you know, <laughs> you know, where we could, where we could pause and set the book down. Um, and you know, maybe even sit down and process something that that we've read. I think I maybe just like totally didn't answer your question. If you want to ask it again, you can. <laughs> That's okay. I think you answered a better one. <laughs> <laughs> didn't mean to. It just happened. <laughs> well, no, I want to. I want to ask you about uh, about your sentences. So you know, as such as well. So I noticed lots of lots of really short sentences, and I know that's one of your uh, mottos for writers. If anybody goes to your website. <laughs> They can uh, read your mottos for writers, and you say that shorten your sentences and catch your adverbs. And I notice you you do that with the sentences, um, and, but not with necessarily the paragraph. So you might have a, a long paragraph that's made up of, you know, 15, 17 sentences. They're very short sentences, but not the the paragraph so much, which read very, uh, very, very smooth, very quickly. I could have read. I did read parts of this out loud to my child. Um, and it, it flows nicely. Um, Thank you. When what's what's your rule of thumb as far as uh, paragraphs versus sentences, and why are short sentences so desirable? Hmm. You know, I think that they are. I think short sentences are sometimes desirable, and I think that um, I think that, for instance, the sentences in both. If anybody here seen Frenchie and my 2018 book, which was The Truth Is Told by Mason Buttle, I think that these had to do, that this, the length of the sentences in these had to do with the thought patterns of the characters. I think that that's, that's where the match came from. A character like Lydia in A Home for Goddesses and Dogs is a little bit more of a long thinker. And so I think that maybe, like, I didn't know what you just told me. I've never really looked back at the writing and, and thought that ab about it. I'm sure you're not wrong, but, um, you know, where that the paragraphs can be long, but the sentences are short. But I think that has to do with me hearing the character in my ear, hearing the way that they're thinking. Um, it, yeah, it's, I mean, that, that's probably it coming through them. And if you look at Frenchie and if you look at, like, the, the, um, one of the other points of view, I think you might see longer sentences. I'm not sure whether you whether you read like Maxine's one of Maxine's chapters or not. Um, but um, uh, and at one point Maxine gets a little loaded up on some painkillers actually, and her sentences change then too. So I mean, I think that that for me has lots to do with, like I say, with with char the character's thought, the character's situation. Yeah. Funny. <laughs> so, with the uh, with the pros as much as you can, you're trying to give us a peek inside their mental state and how. And if they were there editing it and organizing it with you, this is how they would want it to, to be on the page. I think so. I mean, to me, you know, I mean, it may sound a little hokey, but to me, it's their voice coming through. You know, coming through uh, on into my ink. You know. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's how, and sometimes, sometimes I, I will reread something and think, um, you know, I think he would even have a more brief thought about that or, or, you know, or maybe, maybe needs to have 
an additional thought about it. And it, but it's really, it's, it's sort of, I mean, <laughs> it takes this takes the onus off me, you know, I, I almost feel not responsible for some of it, you know, and then, but then I have to go be responsible in the revision, but I try to let that, let those characters flow right down, you know, right down onto the page. So I always say right by ear. With an editor. What, what, what for me? She was on painkillers. Yeah. Most people I think understand that, you know, that you, and you know it from the storyline too. <laughs> <laughs> where she just gets so confused by something she's seeing and it's even more confusing because her mind's not quite right so anyway <laughs> and it just has to say okay well i, I guess that's i guess that's where we're, how we're gonna leave it. fair enough yeah yeah <laughs> let's talk uh, a little bit about autism and and, and then uh, i promise esteemed audience we'll we'll move on to flying saucers and ghosts we, we never leave that out but with okay. autism, obviously, when you, you know, they say, and for a good reason, if you've met someone with autism, you've met a person with autism. So there is no, this is how an autistic character sounds or, or, or is consistently. But what kind of research do you do? How do you get yourself in a position where you can write about these autistic uh, characters credibly? Um, well, first of all, you know, I, I have my fingers crossed hard that, that I have done it credibly. Um, I mean, I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm what I'm, this is nine books in, um, you know, that, that powerful observing, I think is first. Um, I also, I mean, I went to the autistic community. Um, there are, you know, there, there are um, autistic people posting um, really useful YouTube videos. They are um, doing blog posts. There are articles being written. Um, there's a lot of information and a lot of, um, help now out there, you know, or a lot of suggestions, a lot of like, the community is, is, is bonded and, um, you know, the parents are, parents are finding help for, with each other and, and, uh, and through, and with the schools. And, um, I think that's the other thing is acknowledgement now, um, you know, in, in the, in learning environments is, is way more than it was. I mean, I, I don't even want to tell you, you know, I mean, I, I am, I am 62 years old. So, I mean, I was in school a really long time ago and I can now think back on who the autistic kids were and, um, or who, you know, probably, probably were autistic and, um, you know, life must've been hell. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine and nothing, nothing good or kind or understanding seem to be being done for them. And uh, I think that, you know, that, that I am, you know, really, really happy has changed. Um, and yeah, you know, um, I think that we don't have to, none of us have to really go far to, to, um, to, you know, find that we know someone who is autistic or has been on the spectrum or who, ha who has, who has um, characteristics that, that, you know, that could place them on the spectrum, but where they may not be diagnosed that way uh, as, as being autistic um, in the end. Um, but still, but, you know, I think still acknowledging and seeing the characteristics may help um, with maybe something like an individual education plan for them or just, you know, strategies, things like that. Um, but um, I also, I also talked to parents. Um, I thought that that was a really important place to go, um, especially when I was writing about um, a child who doesn't speak. And so, you know, there was there was help there and suggestions there. And um, 
you know, one of the things, one of the things I heard repeatedly what, or, and read repeatedly is so very true. I mean, the autism spectrum is so vast that um, there's someone that might say to you, show me a kid with autism and I'll show you a kid with autism, you know? And actually what we wanna say is, is an autistic kid and, you know, and I'll show you one autistic kid. Um, my daughter explained it to me best. She said, it's not a kid with autism. She said, mom, no one would say to you, Leslie has shortness. You say, you know, Leslie is short. So you are, you know, it's a, there's a difference there. So, um, so, um, the, you know, like I said, the, Show me what, show me, a, a, you know, a, an autistic kid and I'll show you just one autistic kid, meaning that it's all so different. Um, there may be some things that fall similar, you know, that fall similar, but it is a huge, it, it is a huge spectrum. And, um, you know, I mean, Asperger's falls on the autism spectrum um, and that is actually often really high functioning, um, uh, very, very talkative, very verbal. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have brilliant people. There are, there are lists everywhere of artists and, and uh, you know, um, in, all, in all fields of the arts that are, that are autistic. And, um, you know, I think, that, I think that finding, now we're finding ways to celebrate um, them and to, and, and to help them live their best their best lives, they just need you know they just need <laughs> to to have that you know have that entry into the world like everyone else does the same sort of opportunities and things like that. So, yeah. Well, um, that was an incredibly thoughtful response, uh, and the only way I could possibly follow that up is Leslie Connor. Have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't seen a flying saucer, but I um, certainly acknowledge the possibility of that. Um, yeah, I don't think I could be a thinking person and, and cancel that idea out. Um, ghosts, yes, I have seen um, ghosts, um, one, one in particular, um, and, you know, actually it was an incredibly touching moment that meant a lot to me. Um, we lost a kid in our community at one point and um, uh, a kid I was close enough to that, you know, I could say that I loved him. And, um, you know, we went through these uh, hard, hard, hard weeks of grief. And, um, you know, I just, you know, how do you, how do you reach? How do you reconcile? How do you, I mean, there's no closure really, I don't think. But um, one night uh, I was asleep and aware of, you know, a first, first sort of a little bit of an outline that came slowly beside the bed. Um, and I really just, I know, it almost sounds like arrogant to talk about, but I really felt like uh, he came to say, you know, came to give me some kind of a piece, like just being a really good, good boy, good kid that he, that he had been. And uh, yeah, so, um, yeah, I was, 
really moved and, you know, talked to his mom later and said, do you want to know what a great boy you have, you know? And um, so, yeah, I think ghosts for sure, for sure. Does that give you some assurance and a little bit of uh, calmness um, about, about death and about the eventuality of we're all going to go on to see uh, whatever mm -hmm. it is on the other side? Yeah, um, yeah, I am calm about that, actually. Um, <laughs> I have more thoughts about get, getting there before uh, things get icky and expensive for me here on Earth. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, definitely, I, it doesn't really scare me. Um, you know, I'm I'm scared of missing the physical presence of of folks I don't want leaving before me. Um, but yeah, I'm a, you know I I have peaceful. I guess overall, I probably of most people I know, I have pretty peaceful feelings about about um, death and moving on. Um, funny thing about me, you know, you know, um, uh, sometimes we have these discussions about religion and you know what people believe in terms of the afterlife, and I have sometimes maintained that you you get the thing that you believe in and i think that that you know i think well, why why not why wouldn't that be possible you know um didn't wasn't that part of how life was on earth too what isn't isn't that what isn't that what we experienced here so you know i think it matters not that much what what each of us thinks will happen to us um uh well yeah <laughs> too much more to say about that but it's just a thought that occurs to me a lot oh, i love the idea of like a classic you know the saint peter at the gate scenario uh and you get there and he's able to you know look over uh your mind and see what you thought like that's what you thought the afterlife was gonna be oh my god wait till you see this this is <laughs> you won't even believe how much different this is <laughs> yeah I don't know. It's so interesting. I, you know, the other the other thing I sometimes share discussions with close friends about is, you know, first timers here on Earth. You know, <laughs> like like it's sort of like a like a like um yeah they've been here before. They've got kind of like a they're operating on a plane where where a person feels like you know they seem so uh, calm and content in their life. There's no way they couldn't have had some practice before this, and they've come here. You know, uh, they they they've come around again a couple of times or something like that. You know. And, and whereas someone who seems like kind of um, unsettled and nervous and, 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 uh, and um, yeah, I don't know. There's like a, there's like a first timer, <laughs> yeah, first timer, you know, still, still lots of wisdom to gain or whatever, but some people just seem to come with more. And I, I swear it's because they they've had, they've, they've had, you know, previous lives that, that uh, informed them. <laughs> Well, hopefully it works like uh, like a like a like a ski resort where there's like bunny slopes. So like maybe your first time down, you're a lightning bug. Well, just, let's see if you can handle being a lightning bug, and then maybe next time around we'll try a raccoon and we'll we'll just work our way up from there. Uh, now, see, I love that. that. That's right, right up my alley. I love that idea. <laughs> well, I'm watching our time, and I, I'm seeing that it's it's it's, it's slipping away. It always does. Yeah. It's a great conversation. It it, it definitely flows uh, away from us. I did want to ask you about a couple of these other writing mottos, uh, and and oh, then yeah. we're gonna 
a little bit of last bit of writing advice from you, and we'll, we'll think about calling it an evening. We talked about keeping the sentences short. You also yeah. say, don't keep anything in your manuscript that you don't believe to be beautiful or useful. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, uh, what are some things that wouldn't be beautiful or useful, but that might try to sneak into a manuscript anyway? Yeah. Um, so first of all, it's a total steal from um, William Morris, the designer and artist. And, um, you know, who said that about our homes, you know, don't keep anything you, you don't believe to be beautiful and useful. And I'm really bad at that, actually, because I like stuff. And, um, and I, you know, I like so many different things that I don't pare down well at my house, although I've started to do that recently, strange, just strangely been really hitting it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's my way of asking myself when, when looking at the manuscript, um, you know, is this sort of long sentence really doing good work for you? Have you already said this? It's a way, it's a way of editing, I think. Um, and um, did you sort of, did, is there anything I added that's kind of, um, you know, too much in there for me and not in there enough for the story or the writer. Was I kind of hung up on some little idea I thought was so clever and should it really, would the manuscript be stronger if I cut it? That's not, that That would mean it wasn't really that useful there. So that's what I, I would I would cut that, you know, that that's what I would hope to cut. Um, it's just a way of trying to, um, present a better package, present a cleaner package to, to, the, to the future readers. Yeah. You cut things like that. Do you keep them in a file to hopefully maybe find their way into another project someday or are they just gone forever? You know, usually they're just not that great and they're gone. <laughs> <laughs> you are far more honest than I am. I, I save them in files and then I'll go back and look at them and like, oh, there's a whole bunch of brilliant stuff in there. Nope, there's, there's nothing salvageable. <laughs> so during, during a project, I will sometimes keep, you know, one of those long skinny lists on the wall and put down, you know, put things. I mean, same with the note cards. It's like, you know, that's when I'm having like this little moment of cleverness and maybe in the end it works and maybe it doesn't. I mean, sometimes they're gems, let's face it, you know, maybe, and you don't want to forget them. If I hadn't sat up that night and written down those, those two little things on the three by five card, you know, um, one, I wouldn't have the story to tell. <laughs> and two, I wouldn't have the story to write. So there you go. Uh, let's see, another motto of yours is treat everything you write like a read aloud. Do you read aloud your, your stories and who do you read them to? Yes, I do. I was thinking about um, a question I've seen you ask before about, you know, if you could sit down with any any writer, who, who would it be? And, um, you know, I think my answer is my critique group uh, to that. And that that is where I read out loud. Yes, I think that... Um, I think you have to hear your stories out loud. I mean, if you, if you don't choose critique group for that, that's fine, but sit and read them to yourself or your dog or your cat or whoever will listen. Um, you know, um, that has so much to do with voice. And I feel like there are a lot of manuscripts I read that could be improved on if they'd been heard out loud. You would feel the little bit cringy, gawky part of it and you would get rid of it, you know, and you would end up with that cleaner manuscript that, you know, had a beautiful and useful lines in it and not and not uh, some 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 gook or just, you know, I mean, even just when I when we read out loud to each other um, at our at our Tuesday tables, my, my critique group and I sometimes we'll just hear something that gives our 
you know, I'll, I'll read it out loud and I'll say, Ooh, I'm not keeping that, you know, never mind, never mind, never mind, you know. Um, but you also hear other, other little sort of writing faux pas and things like that. And it's just, just a great way to catch, you know, just making more catches, you know, the, of things that you really don't want in there. But like I say, they do think that the process is so much happening by ear that, that, that to hear it out loud is really important. In your critique group, you meet twice a month and you have breakfast, right? There's eight of you. Yeah, yeah, that's us. Yeah. How, uh, how long have you been together and how did the pandemic impact your, your meetings? We have been together in some form or another for 25 years. Um, and for pandemic, we went from um, every second and fourth Tuesday to every Tuesday and we went via Zoom. So we got together more often. We needed, you know, we all needed the, the sort of, you know, the sort of being in touch just socially. Um, and and uh, we really, we really did like that. We've gone, we've gone back to meeting in person. Um, uh, not all that, not, not so long ago though, actually. It's interesting. I mean, we, we, uh, you know, every time there's been variant issues or someone has traveled or something, we often will, will make an adjustment for that. Maybe one person will zoom into it to the breakfast table or whatever when the rest of us are in person but you know we're very cautious about each other but um but yeah i mean i was really grateful for zoom during that time and so so were, were so was everybody um and uh it was kind of fun too because we were on the 40 minute zoom plan you know we didn't have the unlimited so it'd be kind of like okay i'm gonna go fill my cup or run to the bathroom or whatever you know and it was it was great um it it worked very very well for us you know and and kept us from you know and I think it kept us cheerful during during the isolation we didn't feel so isolated and we were writing and we were you know we read a lot so that that was great we worked and with your your critique meetings you, I know you do the social part first, and then you, you get down to business. Are you just reading aloud what you brought and prepared for that session? Or is anybody doing reading before the session and then coming in with notes? How, how, how are you doing that part? Yeah, um, it, all, all of it happens, you know, on the screen or at the table. We don't, we don't pre-read. Um, occasionally, if we're, um, you know, occasionally we'll have, we'll, we'll ask for, does anybody have time to read? Um, you know, a fix I made on chapter two before I meet my deadline, whatever, you know, something like that we might, we might ask each other for. But, um, but no, we come, we, we're reading sort of fresh, you know, and um, we, you know, we reread if we need to. Um, sometimes we'll hear, you know, we'll hear somebody's novel for years running. Uh, and, you know, that's how, that's kind of how novel writing goes, I think. Um, we also share news when we network a bit, um, that kind of thing. Um, catch up on what's been going on um, in the publishing world. Um, some of us are doing different things. Some of us travel more than others. Some of us do more school visits than others. Um, you know, so we're, we're, you know, it's just, it's a great tool, you know, for, for that. I meet, I have, I have some other writer groups that I, that I meet with too, but we don't do critique. So this is the one that, you know, is really, um, yeah, most about story for me and about hearing the thing, hearing the work out loud. And you learn a lot when you hear someone else's work out loud, but you learn the most when you hear your own work out loud. You go, oh, yeah, okay, I'm going to fix that, you know. 
or, or just that you're feeling like it's running very long or you're, you know, I mean, every once in a while, one of us will drop a page and go, I am boring myself, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all good. You know, it's all, it's all good feedback for you, for the story. I, it's all about making that better, you know. And I'm going to ask just a, a little bit of in the weeds questions and then I'll stop it. I promise okay. there's eight of you. Um, and, and you're not reading your own work. Somebody else is reading your work so you can hear it. Are, are no, I'm reading it. We, oh, no, we re each read our own. We do okay. read our own. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you, I mean, I'm assuming there's, there's some limit. I mean, you, you can't be there for five, seven hours. Um, do you have a set limit? I read three pages. I can read five. One. No, I mean, we're actually, actually really, really patient with each other. I mean, I mean, generally speaking, in terms of sort of meeting, uh, having, using the meeting as a deadline, I mean, the pace that most of us are at, we might be lucky to have three chapters for, for a, a meeting every, every two weeks or something like that. I mean, I don't, any, I don't think any of us write at a super fast pace. Um, but, um, but no, I mean, and also there are times when not everyone will have something to read. And so, um, you know, we usually find that out before we settle down with how many people are, how many people are reading today. And then we gauge our social, um, you know, hour or, or 40 minutes or whatever, you know, we gauge the time we're going to spend on that and get to the work, you know? Uh, yeah. So that, you know, we, we kind of allow for each other, but, you know, We'll stay at that, you know, we'll stay from, you know, 9 a.m. to 2.30 <laughs> if we need to. So we will. Yeah, we're hardcore. <laughs> so is everybody else kind of following along and making notes in a manuscript or just, or just listing and then giving you their immediate thoughts afterward? We usually go by chapter um, and, you know, you finish a chapter and you usually get some feedback and... Um, or, you know, you know, the questions on their mind and, you know, sometimes the question on someone's mind is simply, um, <clears throat> yeah, like, a, like a matter of sort of tension and momentum. And it's like, I'll get to that in the next chapter. And then, you know, then we, then we move on, but it's neat to know what they're thinking about as they're, you know, as they're hearing the story, that to me is really useful feedback. You know, I, good. I want you to be looking at, you know, the pair of red socks hanging from the tree. <laughs> you know, I want you to be looking at that. So I'm glad, you know, I, that helps me to know, oh, that that is an image that is standing out and they're remembering it, you know. I am deeply jealous. This sounds like a wonderful group. Oh, it's wonderful. Wonderful. They're my heart and soul. We're also very good friends after all this time. So that's really special, you know, that we, we, uh, we help each other out when there's other things going on, you know, like knee replacements and stuff like that. If somebody has, has, you know, something happening in the family and could use a meal, you know, we're, we're, we are, we are our own small community in that way too. That sounds just wonderful. It is. It's good. Well, I promised that I would I would start to bring this thing in toward toward a landing. So there's there's one last writing motto that you've got listed that I that I love. I wanted to ask you about, and that's write what you can't ignore. What can't you ignore? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think we started to talk about this earlier. Um, I can't remember if we were recording at the time, but you know, I, you hear that write write what you know or write what you want to know. And for me, it's write what you can't ignore. You know, something sticking to you is likely to um, have some kind of draw for a, re a reader. I I believe, and you know, like I said, I think that's that's 
I sort of I sort of trust in that. If I can't stop thinking about this, perhaps it's that interesting. And you know, hopefully I can put it to story. Well, my uh, last question for you is always some variation. Uh, if you could go back toward the uh, start of your career, middle career, wherever it would be useful for you uh, and offer yourself um, some writing advice that would have made difference for you and might make a, a difference for anyone who's watching or listening to us right now. Uh, and that might even be a, a potential candidate for a fifth motto. <laughs> well, yeah. what, would you, what would you go back and tell yourself? Um, you know, I think for me, um, I think it's something that um, I, I think this is, is advice people don't need anymore because I think they know it better than I knew it. Um, this is, I, I mean, I'm going to sound like such a dope, but I think I thought that I needed to kind of sit back and see whether a book did all right before I submitted some more to that editor and, you know, and, and got going. And, um, you know, I don't, I, I know that people were saying to me, oh, you know, um, what are you going to throw at her next? What are you going to throw at her next? You know, and I, I'll, all I could think was, well, don't we have to see like whether this book does does anything in order for them to, to know whether they want another one? And I don't know why I had that sort of hang up in my mind. Um, so, um, I mean, I was already, I, I did follow that, you know, okay, now, now, you know, it's being published, you know, you'll get your revisions. In the meantime, write the next book. I was doing that I, I was writing it, um, <clears throat> but I think I hesitated to show things. I think I felt like there was proving ground that needed to happen or something, and it's totally erroneous. I don't know why I thought that. Um, they can certainly decide, um, but uh, but yeah, I think I would have. I think I probably would suggest you know being ready to to you know move another manuscript toward the process even after even when you're still working, you know even when you're still waiting for revisions on on one be doing that. But like I said, I think most people know that these days. <laughs> well, then knowing it and, and, and putting it in action are two different things. <laughs> I realize, yeah, I realize. I, there was a certain, I felt a certain shyness about having had something accepted, I think. And um, I, you know, I think I would have given myself a little elbow and said, now don't be shy. <laughs> don't think that's the only book that you, that you have in you, you know, go ahead. There might be another really good idea coming up here. You know, you got to trust this once, you got to trust it again and, 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 and go, you know? Uh, so I, I think, I think, so maybe my advice would be, you know, be less shy. Well, I'm sure that all the uh, writers and artists listening and, and watching to us will, will take that to heart. And there's there's no there's no shyness among amongst the writers. I'm I'm sure <laughs> not even an issue. <laughs> <laughs> they probably got it knocked. Yeah. <laughs> it has been a privilege and a pleasure to to talk with you tonight. I appreciate how generous you you've been with your time. Where can esteemed audience find you online? Follow you on social media and all that good stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, I meant to have this ready. You know, I'm, I'm not so much of a Twitter person. I show up there every once in a while, but that's not really my bag. I am um, at Hey Leslie Connor um, uh, at on Instagram, and that's where I do most of most of my posting. Um, I did finally set it up. I'll also go to Facebook. So, you know, I, I don't know what I, I'm just Leslie Connor, I think, at Facebook. I'm not sure. I can't remember how that part works. Um, 
And then, you know, uh, my website is, is just lesliconner.com. And um, you'll, you can also get to the Instagram posts there. Um, but that's my favorite piece of social media, I guess, is I think maybe because I came to this very image oriented. Um, one thing that you can see posted there um, is um, an important part of um, Frenchie. And I'll kind of I'll kind of leave you with this. Um, you know, the cover, I don't know if it will show up on the screen well, but one of the details on the cover, there is a deer in the background there. And that deer um, I did see in real life it is a piebald deer. And I saw it here on our property for about 22 months running. It, it, was, it was here. They have a short lifespan, um, unfortunately. Um, but that became a real, uh, real little gem. It was another one of the things that kind of fell into the story and I knew was going to be important because, of course, the minute I saw that animal, the research began. I was like, what am I looking at here? Um, very beautiful thing. But though you will find posts, if you go back a ways, you'll find um, the posts of the piebald deer. Um, we did get several, you know, decent slash fuzzy pictures of it. Um, and um, I'll be posting more of those as I start to promote French and start to kind of do some launch posts. You know, we're, we are um, three months out, I guess. It's, it's February 15th, 2022. So coming up. But yeah, look for the piebald deer. So special. Esteemed audience, if you're listening to us uh, as this episode releases, pre-order your copy right now. If you're listening to us later, that good news. It's already available. You can be downloading it to your device as you're watching or listening to us. Uh, as always, for more information about me and more important, for information about the show, interviews with thousands of editors, literary agents, authors, all my favorite people, go to middlegradeninja.com. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.